Good morning. I am excited to be here this morning. Uh, it's a lot of fun to, to come back to Ohio, to be where I grew up, to be with family and friends, and to do all of the, the great things that go along with being with family and friends. And so being here at church this morning is another exciting thing. A little background about me. I serve as the associate pastor at Lockport Alliance Church up in New York. Uh, we're north of Buffalo, close to Niagara Falls. We actually have to go south to Niagara Falls. So when we say we're from New York, it's not close to New York City. We're actually like lower Canada. That's kind of how I look at it. So that's where we're from. Uh, I have been married to my wife, Becky, for about uh, 10 and a half years. And uh, we have three boys, twin four-year-olds, Luke and Levi and uh, a little baby boy named Zeke who was born just a few months ago uh, last summer. And so we're here. Dan told you my mom and dad live here. Uh, I am the oldest of five. And uh, as the oldest of five, there are certain privileges that go along with being the oldest sibling. Uh, I never had to sit in the back seat. I always got to be in the front because that's how the age rule worked in our family. I never had to wear hand-me-down clothes because I was bigger. And uh, I was stronger than them for the most part. And uh, whenever that came, the, the time came that I needed to exercise my older brother authority, uh, it was pretty easy to do so. So I went off to college. I went to Mount Vernon Nazarene University, started in 2004. And my parents moved to Haiti in January that year and took all of my siblings with them. And uh, when they left in Haiti, there's not access to things that we have here. There's not places for kids to hang out. School's 45 minutes away. There's all sorts of unreliable internet, no cable TV. So my siblings needed to figure out something to do to pass the time. And so they found a weight bench and weights and started bulking up. And so I was gaining the freshman 15 here in Ohio. They were putting on some serious muscle in Haiti. And so when the time came for me to, to be with them again and to exercise that older brother authority, uh, it did not go as it usually had ever. And so I remember they had my hands behind my back. They had my arms lifted up like this, and they were pushing my face into the ground. And I remember just yelling, I surrender. I surrender. I give up. I quit. Mercy, right? And so when I think of surrender, the term surrender has had this negative connotation to it. And as we lead into Easter this week, and as your church has gone through the Gospel of Matthew, um, I wanted to look at this idea of surrender in a different light this morning. Maybe surrender isn't such a bad thing if we follow the example of Jesus, which we're to do in every aspect of our life, as somebody who exercised the ability to surrender. So we're going to go on a journey to the Garden of Gethsemane today. Uh, it's Thursday of the Passion Week, and Jesus' disciples uh, and him had just finished the Passover meal, which would have been their last supper together. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 26. And uh, we're going to look at this, this, this event that literally took place right after the Last Supper. Jesus and his 11, 11 of his 12 disciples, Judas has already gone, uh, headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, I, I want, as we start, for you to not miss the intensity of this moment. Because what's going on here, these are Jesus' last few minutes of freedom. And this is a climactic moment in the life of Jesus and also in the struggle between good and evil. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three things that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three things that Jesus exchanged on our behalf for us. 
So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to start with verse 36. Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 36. The words will be on the screen too. I'm sorry that they're tiny. Uh, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And so the first thing that we see that Jesus exchanged in the garden is his surrender for our survival. His surrender for our survival. You see, uh, Gethsemane is a garden that's located on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. It's loaded with olive trees. It's about a 15 or 20 minute walk from Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples would frequent the garden and, and Jesus would spend time in prayer. And so the fact that after the, the Passover meal was over, Jesus wanted to go for a walk to the garden to pray was not a shock to the disciples. This was kind of commonplace. It says that, that two people went, or three people went with him, the sons of Zebedee and Peter. Who are the sons of Zebedee? That, that would be James and John. And they are some of the disciples. So you've got Peter and James and John. These three guys are Jesus's closest friends. If the disciples, the 12, were the in-group, these guys are the in-group of the in-group. And I think this is a great picture for me of the humanity of Jesus. Because when we're going through hard things, when we're going through tough times and struggles and agonizing stuff and distress, how comforting is it to know that you have people to go with you? How easy, how much better or how much more tolerable is it to have some people walking through those hard things with you? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Come with me, pray with me, encourage me, support me, watch with me. And then you see what happens next, the back half of verse 37 and 38. It says, it says this, it says, uh, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, stay here and keep watch with me. You've got these feelings that Jesus has is, is deep anguish, distress, hard, even to the point of death because what is about to happen to him. And he knows what's coming. And he knows that it talks about having to drink this cup. That's what Jesus mentioned in verse 39. This cup is, is the divine fury and wrath of his father against sin. All of that is about to be poured out on Jesus. And that is agonizing and distressing to him. He knew what was coming, even though he had never sinned, even though he had lived a perfect life, even though he had never done anything wrong, he was about to face something that sinners deserve, that you deserve, and that I deserve. And that's complete and total separation from God. Second Corinthians chapter 5 is one of my favorite Bible verses, and it says this. It says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, for you and for me, so that in him, in no other name, no other path, no other, no other opportunity, in no other name but Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so you have to understand, it wasn't the fact that Jesus was going to die that was causing him all of this sorrow and anguish. He knew that his mission was to come and to save mankind. He was coming to make a way for us, but it was the kind of death that he was going to die that really was causing this anguish in his heart. 
He was about to become completely separated from his father, who he was in perfect intimacy with. We were here yesterday for my, my brother's wedding. He married uh, Paige Callendine, and, and it was a beautiful ceremony. And, and in a marriage relationship, there's intimacy, right? You're close. Becky and I have been married for 10 years. We're close. That happens in that relationship. It's an intimate marriage relationship. But in our side of humanity, there's imperfections and there's hard things and we fail and we fall short. But what, what Jesus had with God the Father as God the Son and with the Holy Spirit was this perfect intimacy. And, and Jesus knew more than the nails that were going to be driven through his hands, more than the spikes, more than the crown of thorns, more than the spear in his side, more than the whips from the lashes, what was driving him to this anguish and distress to the point of death was this idea that he was going to be separated from God with whom he had always had perfect intimacy with. And that's why in verse 39, he, he says, going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if this is possible, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus falls on his face here and he shows this, this posture of complete surrender, humility, letting go of everything that he has and saying, not as I will, but as you will, Father. But he does say, if it's, if it's possible, he's saying, is there any other way than, than going to the cross, than facing this, than being separated from you, if there is another way? And it'd be important to note here that there's no conflict between Jesus and the Father on this. It's actually the opposite. It's not like an angry teenager dragging his feet. Stop dragging me. Stop making me do what you want me to do. That's not what he's doing here. Be saying, I, I, I will do what you want me to do, no matter the end, no matter the cost, I'm willing to do it. But does it have to be this way? Is there any other way? And I want you to try to picture in your mind what's happening right here, because Jesus knows that all of his closest friends are about to abandon him. His father, who he has perfect intimacy with, is about to turn his back on him, and he will be completely alone while his father's power and wrath and hatred against sin is literally laid on his shoulders. And if you stop and you picture that, that is the picture of ultimate surrender and sacrifice. Jesus, who had never done anything wrong, never committed a sin, never done anything that, that would make people take a second look, was about to become sin for each of us. That is ultimate suffering. And it's important to stop and it's important to think about that because that should have been us. That should have been you and me. And I'm so thankful to be able to say that if you have repented of your sins and you have called on Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will never have to know what separation from God is like. You never have to experience that. However, and the burden of getting people here for Easter, the burden of going out into the neighborhoods is because there are people in the world and there are people in this room and there are people in your family who do not trust in Jesus as their Savior and they can still face the agonizing torture of being separated from God and spending eternity in hell. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and overcame death. This, this gospel message, the good news, is a matter of life and death because it impacts our eternity. And you may be sitting there right now, you might be thinking, well, how could a loving God do this? A loving God wouldn't punish us. A loving God wouldn't punish his son. He, that, what do you mean a loving God? That's a God of judgment and wrath. That's not, that's not the kind of God that I want to follow. What do you mean he's a loving God? 
if he would do something like that. I think the, the th you've probably heard people say that before. People in your world, people who don't follow Jesus would say, well, I don't want to follow that kind of God. And what we are doing is we are looking at, at what wrath looks like through our eyes, and we're using that as a measuring stick for God, and it doesn't work like that. Because you and I, we're sinners, we're fallen, we don't measure up, and he is perfect, and he is holy. And so there's this quote by J.I. Packer that I'll put on the screen for you. It says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the careless, self-indulgent, uh, irritability, irritable kind of love or kind of anger, sorry. God, let's start again. God's wrath in the Bible is never the careless, self-indulgent, irritable, morally corrupt thing that human anger so often is. I get convicted when I read that because that's oftentimes where my wrath comes from. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil, and it's exactly the reason that God is a holy God of love that he exercises this wrath. Because he does that because perfect holiness and glory cannot exist in the presence of evil. One of these things is not like the other. They cannot be in the same place. And sin, which is a violation of God's commands, distorts the glory of God. And so God's wrath is his love in action against sin. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. And the greatest display of God's love in action was sending Jesus to earth to die for the sins of the world to completely destroy the penalty of sin and death for all of those who put their trust in him. And the greatest act of love of all time of anywhere is now in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing over you and I and the decision that he has to make to completely surrender to the Father so that that can happen. John 3.16 describes it well, and if this is your very first time in church, you've probably heard this verse before. Just because you've heard it a million times, don't miss the importance of what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we see that verse and we see a couple things. We see that it says God so loved this world that even though the, 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 the God's wrath is his love and action against sin, God so loved us that he had to provide a way. And it also says that not everyone will be saved. It says, whoever believes in him, whoever repents of their sins and trusts in him as savior. It says in Acts chapter four, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And it is exactly for this reason that there is no other way, that there's no other name, that there's no other thing to do, that Jesus says, I'm gonna surrender to your will. I'm going to surrender to the Father's will. That's why he says, not my will, Lord, but yours. And so as we look at that, we have to ask ourselves a question. If Jesus is our ultimate example of everything that we should do and we should model him and strive to be like him, where are we refusing to surrender to God's will for our life? Where am I refusing that? Because what we're saying is, not as you will, Lord, but as I will. I will give you this, I will give you that, but this thing, this is mine. Not what you say, what I want. I'm saying right here, I'm not going anywhere else. Not as you will, but as I. And if you're here this morning, you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, I'd like to say two things to you. And this may, you may be visiting, you may be coming back to church after a long time. You may have been drugging here, kicking and screaming. I don't know where you are. But the number one thing is you are not an accident and you are not here by accident. I know I'm not here by accident. My wife drugged me in this morning, kicking and screaming. No, you are not in this place on accident. The Lord brought you here. 
You are not an accident. You are not here on accident. And it is the Lord's will that you give your heart to him, that you surrender to him and be saved. How do you know that? Well, the Bible says that. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. So let's follow up with that. The Lord is patient with you. Thank the Lord for that because I am so grateful when he's patient with me over and over again. But there is a time coming when the Lord's chasing of you will stop. When the clouds open up and the Lord returns for his church, his seeking for you will stop and it will be too late. The Lord is patient, but it will end. And because we know that end time is coming for those of us who follow Jesus, there's an urgency there to go and tell. There's an urgency there to surrender our will to God so that we can then speak truth into the lives of others. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this is a decision point for you. This is something that you have to decide. How am I going to live? What am I going to do? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, two things for you. Number one, who or what is competing for God's glory in your life? Who or what is competing for God's glory in your life? In other words, who are you living for? For some of us, it's, well, well, I'm single right now, but once I get married, then I am going to be sold out for the Lord. Or once I climb the corporate ladder, then I'll be set. Or once I have a couple kids, then I'll be good to go. Then I will follow the Lord. Or once I get into this school or get to this GPA, or, or if I beat this habit or get over the worry that I'm struggling with or beat this addiction, then I'm going to be fine. Once I, once I beat this secret sin that no one knows about but me and God, then I will be able to follow God with everything. Once I stop worrying, once I, once I seek the forgiveness of people who've wronged me, and you're hanging on to that, and you're living there, and you're, you're not living for God, it's stealing the glory of God from your life. And you're saying, well, you don't know me. You walk into this place, you don't understand. If you, I've tried to overcome sin. I've tried to overcome these things. You don't know how many times I've been hurt. You don't know how many times I've tried to beat this addiction or this anxiety or this worry. You don't understand. You don't get it. Not as he wills, but as I will. And I'm staying right here. I'm not saying that it's easy, because it's not. But I'm saying that it's true, and that it's freeing. The book of Galatians chapter 5 says that it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. What he's saying is stop going back there. You don't have to do it. We sang about the power of Christ this morning. The power of Christ in us, to those of us who have surrendered our hearts to Jesus Christ, is greater than anything that we will ever deal with in this world. The power of the Holy Spirit, which we need to be fully activated, is greater than anything that we can face in this world. A.W. Tozer is a hero of mine. He's a well-known Christian Missionary Alliance pastor from a long time ago. And he says this. He says, let a man set his heart only on doing the will of God, and he is instantly free. Let a man set his heart only on doing the will of God, and he is instantly free. Free from what? Free from guilt, free from condemnation, free from the baggage that the enemy tells us that we have to carry all the time, the, the, this burden that you have got to carry. No, you are free from those things in Jesus Christ. Jesus surrendered so that we could survive. His resolve to submit to the Father's will, even though it was hard, no matter the cost, no matter the end, made a way for us to bridge the gap from sinful fallen man to perfect, holy, righteous God. And I'm so grateful that he did that. The question is, how do we respond? So he exchanged his surrender for our survival. He also exchanged his strength 
for our weakness. Matthew chapter 26, verse 40. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Verse 43, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time the same thing. So Jesus is with these three guys who he loves a lot. He's invested and he's poured in. They're the in-group of the in-group. He takes them with him. He says, stay here and watch. And he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And he says, you, you couldn't watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Now, this is not Jesus reacting in a way that I would react. You guys are kidding me. All I've asked you to do was pray, and you can't even do that for an hour, and you fell asleep? That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not being angry about this here. He, this is a warning to them about the danger that's coming. Jesus knew what they were going to face in the coming hours. He knew that they needed the courage and the strength that comes from not themselves, but only from God that would get them through. The wording there says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the spirit Jesus is talking about here is not the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit, like human willpower. How many of us are guilty of that? The, the spirit is willing. I will do this and this and this and this, but the flesh is weak and we get tired. We make these commitments to so many different things and then we can't follow through. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In essence, Jesus knew that they could not rely on their own strength, their own power to get them through what was coming. And, and you see Peter's denial and the one-by-one -one abandonment of all of these disciples. They weren't ready for what they were going to deal with. They were not ready. Jesus says he, he goes away two more times and he comes back and they're sleeping. And, and Jesus, he, to get a more intimate picture of what happens here, I want to look at the parallel in the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got your Bible, flip over to Luke chapter 22 with me real quick. And uh, I just want to read two verses from Luke chapter 22, verse 43 and 44. It says, An angel of he from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So here we, we have Jesus about to take on the hardest thing that he's ever dealt with. The most challenging situation, the most tough scenario that we could imagine. And Jesus continues to cry out to his father. And in Luke chapter 22, it says, An angel appeared to him and gave him supernatural strength. He could pray more earnestly than he had prayed before. Every time his body said, Give up and quit. You're not worth it. You can't do this. The supernatural strength from God came and enabled him to keep going. The weaker he got, the stronger he became because of the power of the Spirit of God. And that supernatural strength that he had came only after his declaration of full surrender to do the will of God. To do whatever God asked him to do, no matter the end, no matter the cost. There was no pride left in Jesus. And how many times does our pride get in the way of the supernatural power of God being impactful in our lives? How many times do we spend all of our time saying, I've got to do this. I need to do this. I must do this. If I don't do this, it won't happen. If I don't do this, it's going to fall apart. I must do it. I've got to do it. I've got to. We waste all of our time and our energy doing that. Instead of saying, you know what? I cannot do it. 
I can't do it on my own. I need you, God. I can't be the dad I'm supposed to be. I can't be the husband I'm supposed to be. I can't be the friend I'm supposed to be. I can't beat this addiction. I can't beat this worry. I can't do it on my own. I need your power to help. I need your power to help. And this is not surprising to the Lord. John chapter 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we have to ask ourselves, what areas in our life are we substituting this unbelievable strength that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit for our own fake strength that we think that we've got on our own? What are we doing with that? Where are we substituting that? And what are we missing out on because we're doing that? Uh, commentator Leon Morris says, A willing spirit is not enough. It must be supplemented by prevailing prayer. And I love to hear that this church prays. This church cares enough to call on God to come and to bless this church, to grow this church, to speak truth in this church, and to impact this community. Because you have to ask yourself, am I, a, am I a church? Am I a Christian who is committed to prayer? Because a willing spirit is not enough. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need the Holy Spirit to do what God has called us to do. That's a question that you have to answer in your heart. I just know that in his darkest hour and time of greatest need, Jesus called on the one who could do that for him. Jesus called on the one who was able to help him overcome the battles he's facing. It's too hard for you. Quit. Sounds familiar. We tell ourselves that all the time. Give up. Don't do it. It's too hard. You can't make this happen. If people found out about this, they wouldn't trust you. If people knew that you struggled with this, they wouldn't do that. You might as well quit. And we see Jesus in his time of dark, darkest time, in a time of deepest need, calling on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, enabling him to do that. That same power is the same power that three days later rolled the stone away. That same power is the same power that is inside of you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. That is the power of the Holy Spirit in each of us to work and to make things happen. Christ took on every weakness that we ever had, and he swallowed it up to give us his strength. He exchanged his surrender for our survival. He exchanged his strength for our weakness. And he exchanged his betrayal for our acceptance. Verses 45 and 46 say, Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And the hour Jesus is talking about is this time in the garden when the guard shows up and, and Jesus is to be arrested and his death becomes imminent. The betrayer he's talking about is Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples who had walked with Jesus, experienced life with Jesus, been taught by Jesus for three and a half years. And says the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners and Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the high priests and the other leaders. Men who rebelled against God at the same time that they thought that they were serving God. They rebelled against God by rejecting his son. And you see, Jesus was betrayed. Jesus continued on this rescue mission. Jesus was fully surrendered to the Father's will so that we had an opportunity to be made right with God. It was for us. He was betrayed. He surrendered. He gave his strength for us. You cannot hear that and stay in the same spot. When you hear what Jesus has done for you and for me, 
we cannot stand here. This is a crucial decision point for each of us that we have to make. Am I going to accept that and follow him with all of my heart? Or am I going to reject that and say, you know what, I'm going to go another way. I'm 20, I'm 40, I'm 60. I know better than God. I'm going to do it myself. So the question that you have to ask yourself is how do you respond? Because it's decision time. You have to do something with it. It comes down to the question, who do you live for? Who do you live for? Do I live for me? Do I live for him? Do I say, not your will, Lord, but mine? Or do I say, not my will, Lord, but yours? And what you choose to say and how you choose to live will shape your eternity, will shape who you are, and will shape the impact that you can have. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who has gone before us, who has done incredible things for us, taken on things that we deserve so that we don't have to, been separated from the love of God so that we don't have to experience that into eternity. Lord, we thank you for the path, and we thank you that that journey began at Christmas in the cradle, but it culminates at the cross and what happens afterwards. And we thank you that we get to celebrate next week the fact that you beat death, that you beat sin, and because of that, we have a way to you, that we can be reconciled, that we can be made right, that we can spend our eternity with you. We can't do that on our own. Thank you for your willing surrender and the example that you are to us in everything in that, Lord, as well. Lord, where is it that we need to surrender? Convict our hearts. Tell us where it is. What are we holding on to that we need to give to you? Lord, make that clear and give us the strength and the courage and the obedience to give that up to you. We pray in your name. Amen.